I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is David Rabinovich, director of the Mental Health Clinic at Trombam Medical Center in Haifa, Israel. He has worked as a psychiatrist in charge of psychiatric outpatient services in both South Africa and Israel, and has invested in the development and teaching of professional skills and approaches in community mental health care. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. But my feeling is that the psychological aspects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not static. That it could be either mitigated by events or get, or get much more complicated and much worse. And what happened in recent days, specifically with the visit of Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House and the press conference that both have uh, only yesterday, in my view, it has complicated the Israeli-Palestinian psychological aspect of the conflict of, between them much more so than it was even uh, a week ago. And that is because President Trump basically threw another aspect, another ideas that actually only further confused the, 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 the conflict, which is already, or make it much more complex than it has already been, because now he is giving both Israelis and Palestinians different kind of set of tools to work with and without any clear definition as to where the United States in fact stand on these issues. When he says one state solution, two state solution, I'm happy with whatever the, you guys decide, as if it was easy for them to decide about anything in the past, and now it's going to be even much easier since he's giving them the license to do whatever they want to do. And so to what extent that has actually aggravated the psychological dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and to what extent that it has changed the perception, for the perception of each other and what they're going to be able or will be able to do as a result of that is going to have also it will also change that's that's how i see it yeah um let me just begin by saying that i think that um I, i'm going to propose a different metaphor for the psychology of the what i call the the ipc the israel palestine conflict i'm going to use that term ipc just to make it shorter uh, is more like an ocean that below the surface there are psychological patterns that have held true over the generations till now and i think that they they constitute a kind of a resource that we can look at and draw on to understand the surface of the ocean which changes with the weather so i think that's 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 the metaphor that i think of over here and i i want to make as a starting point what is often said uh, sometimes in conflict situations where one hears the idea hold me back in other words you want to do more and someone is holding you back and in a sense the person that is holding you back is serving a kind of a purpose because you fear that you may be doing damage and i have a feeling in my mind that that constituted a kind of a psychological configuration in the previous administrations which held the view that there should be a two-state solution and that the project of the settlement should be limited and that gave the Israelis first of all in a sense something to fight against 
because they were being held back and then they had something to blame if it didn't work out in terms of their particular ideology of the of the government of the time whereas the palestinians would perceive that as a kind of anchoring point that there's someone who understands our point of view as well exactly see the obama administration created that horizon basically the horizon yes. was a two-state solution is only the best solution the most viable solution i think what happened now with president trump has done remove that type of framework indeed and throw different kind of ideas into it not necessarily between one or two one state solution or two state solution but other options they talk about other options uh, that they can actually explore what this is, has done basically is set back the whole process of the two state solution completely now the impact of that the impact of that, psychologically speaking in terms of on both sides is that given that they can interpret it the way they want to it has further aggravated further enlarged the gap psychologically speaking between the two sides and that's why i feel that now the conflict has become even more intractable than it was even a week ago so, you know because now there's no constraint and as long as the one party the united states which is probably the only serious uh, able interlocutor between the two sides if the united states is unwilling or unable to take a specific position and uh, to be able to pressure for that matter pressure both israelis and the palestinians to change their attitude if you don't have that interlocutor like the united states basically you know trying to leave them to their own devices and that is going to spell in my view a disaster for the future well i, I think what we you know i'd i'd like to look at it from from this point of view that first of all it has to be said that the the far right agenda in israel is now dominating uh, sorry it's uh, dominating the the uh, process uh, and the far right agenda the political psychology behind it uh, also involves how important it is in the psychology of extreme conservatism to have a clearly defined enemy now let's look at what all this means if there is no longer any force to hold me back if we can say in inverted commas then that means that first of all the far right which has considerable power and influence in israel it's are they going to crystallize even further the palestinians as the enemy they will not tolerate any other perception you could use any term you like that it's indoctrination whatever what it, what i see it is is a highly crystallized cognitive mindset that the palestinians must be seen as the enemy there is no other way to see them it precisely to serve their purpose i mean yes. as we said earlier i think if there is no defined enemy they'll be they want to create one for that matter and the only by sustaining maintaining enmity between <clears throat> israelis and the palestinian the right center is thriving on it right. and that is really what's taking place You see let's let's add something to that and that is that a clearly defined enemy serves a number of purposes. First of all it consolidates the psychology of group identity. Exactly. And I I I think that uh, you know there's been research that we've looked at we won't go into the uh, academic details at the moment uh, which has shown that politically speaking the concept of in-group out-group is very very important in political conflicts. Let's get back to this that if the Trump administration right now has altered the role of the United States 
in the sense that there's no one now to hold me back, again in inverted commas, then it means I would see, first of all, that there will be an increasing consolidation of the in-group identity of the far right. And the implications of that are... On both sides. Well, I'm going to come to that. On both sides. And that's very important to keep in mind because this is exactly what the Palestinians, especially the extremists, are going to feel now, that what is going to hold them? That is, he basically usurped even what's left of any hope that they have that something can be worked out. You know, let me say right now that I have always been amazed, in a way, to the extent to which the Palestinian, the IPC, carries a kind of mirror image that what happens on the one side happens on the other, or processes that happen with different content, but the same structure. And so I I was, of course, due to uh, come to that. But let me say that certainly from the Israeli side, you see, when there is a further consolidation of the in-group identity of the far right, who are now increasing their power and taking further control, let's remember that part of the the consolidated in-group identity, which involves, by the way, the psychology of narcissism, is the increasing unwillingness to forgive the other side for their transgressions as perceived. So, for example, the the historical antecedents of extreme terrorism, which the Palestinians did do and caused an enormous amount of damage, will never be forgiven. And the element of security and building up the settlements to preserve plays adds on to the ideological and religious components of the thinking that takes place here. Whereas, as you correctly say, I think it's important to note that in the psychology of the Palestinian leadership, which has also shifted to the extreme recently with regard to Hamas, and we should not forget the lurking background effect of the Hezbollah as well, is their whole dynamic has to do with humiliation. Yes. It's an emotional element that has its own dynamic. The dynamic is is well described in the literature as as a linear process of being humiliated, followed by what is termed narcissistic rage, and following that is revenge. Exactly. And the thing is, the concept of humiliation from from the Palestinian perspective, that has been a repeated phenomenon going back from the 1948, from the Nakba, and the repeated violence that has taken place between the two sides, where the Palestinians end up being the losing side. Which, which means basically, the, and then of course the occupation itself, but now it's 50 years old, that is provide, that's actually feeding into their sense of being humiliated day in and day out. And as a result, they have becoming this polarization between Israel and the Palestinians on the one hand, and also within the Palestinian community as well, because they're also divided in terms of where do we go from here. Yes, indeed. And that is, that is a problem. <clears throat> so again, I want to go back to the effect of that on the psychological dimension of the conflict itself. Yes. We've been talking uh, about it all along. How do you, how do you given the new, the new development of events in the last few weeks, and the growing, of course, strength for years now of the right of center in Israel itself. 
and now the growing strength of the also the extremists within the Palestinian community. When we were talking before, you know, to create a process of reconciliation, is that going to now work? That is, is do we have to do something that precedes that? Or are we just going to stick to the idea, well, let us start a process of reconciliation, as we've been talking about it before, and see how that's going to work. I think at this point, something else needs to precede even the notion of process of reconciliation. That is, you're going to need an act. What happened yesterday was, was an act that has aggravated the situation a great deal more than we ever expected, from my perspective. So now, can we actually begin to talk about this? Okay, let's have people-to-people uh, -people relationship, let the government change their attitude. That has been further pushed back. That process has been pushed back. The question is, what do we need now to bring it back to the fore and say, well, process of reconciliation can in fact work and change the mindset and mitigate the psychological complexity of the conflict. That's how I see it happened in the last, last couple of years, but you know, and, and it's surfaced now in a very visible, transparent way yesterday. Well, let me respond to that first of all from a, a somewhat uh, pessimistic uh, perspective, and that is that the configurations have been around for a long time. Let me be specific. Um, perhaps I, I, you know, from a perspective of political psychology, I should not be making uh, any political statements uh, or analyses, but I, I want to say one sentence, and I think this is probably true, and I don't think you need to be an expert to recognize this, that for many, many years in, in the IPC, the Israel-Palestine conflict, the moderate center has collapsed, and power has moved to the extremes. On both sides. On both, on bo both sides. Absolutely. Always on both Absolutely. sides. And therefore, I think that what needs to be looked at first and foremost, is to understand the thinking and the psychological processes that epitomize the extremes. We have to understand that. Because I, I'm just going, I'm in a sense repeating myself just to remind that I think that rigid mindsets strongly and powerfully influenced by religion and ideology on both sides serve to consolidate positions with enormous power. Absolutely, yeah. And mitigate against any kind of dialogue. I think that is the starting point of this discussion. So the real, if you want to raise the question, what would increase the chances of some kind of bridging between the two sides? Well, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap uh, of uh, thinking too far into the future because none of us are prophets. But I would say this, I would say this. <clears throat> Much more has to change. There has to be a shift in politics and a fundamental shift in psychology. But that is not going, to, at this point in my view, it's not going to happen anymore, quote-unquote, naturally. That is not going to be a process of changing that position, that attitude, psychologically speaking. Along the line of what I was saying yesterday in this panel discussion, I think now we're faced with a different set of circumstances. To go back to a process of reconciliation, you need to create something. In my view, either it's going to be major explosion between the two sides. That is a major violence activity. That is going to have to change the dynamic of the conflict. That's going to have to, you know, has to happen. 
some catastrophic event may or may not be related directly to them, but taking place in the Middle East is going to be awakened both sides to a new reality as well. Something dramatic will have to happen in order to go back and, and for the both sides to, uh, to, to awake that this situation cannot continue because it's going to be to the detriment of both sides. That's where I'm coming from at this point. I really feel very strongly in a, in a conflict resolution, you know, how do you end the conflict? You're going to have to create, the, a, circumstances will have, to, will have to change. The dynamics of the conflict will have to change. And they don't change on their own unless something huge coming from the outside. That's where I think the Israelis and the Palestinians now find themselves. It becomes only, in my view, a question of time when such an event will take place, whether it's precipitated deliberately by other side or it's coming from the outside. Yeah, I think, uh, you see, this is a topic that has been rolled around a lot, certainly between us, and I think it's also, you, you see it in, in, in other settings, and that is that the most potent catalyzer of change is crisis. Yes. Now, I think we have to understand what this means, because, you know, crisis can mean anything over here. Heaven forbid it can mean war, okay? I mean... We, we look at the Second World War, where it was only the death of 20, 30, I don't know how many millions of people that finally led to the demise of uh, Nazism. No, nothing else would have done it. Nothing else would have done it. It had to be the crisis of war. And I hate to say this because, I, I mean, everyone, n nobody wants war. But what I think needs to be then said is this that somewhere along the line, if the two extremes are so fixed in their thinking, then somehow or another, some way has to be put across to them that what you are preserving, your sacred modes of thinking, are a precursor of crisis that for which there will be great prices to pay. Well, that is if, you, if there, there's a reason for that. I mean, here, if you can sit down and actually <laughs> negotiate and explain to them this cannot be the consequences, otherwise you're going to face a terrible situation, a war. In my view, at this point, war between the two sides or major conflagration in, in one form or another is probably going to be necessary to change what has taken place. I really believe that there is no way that you're going to mitigate now this huge gap between the two sides by simply sitting and, and talking about it. That's and, not going to happen. And, and if I may say, and also in the absence, excuse me saying this, but I, I know that many people will be very upset when I say this, but in the absence of a uh, responsible adult, as was the task perhaps of the previous American ad administrations, they did play an important role in attempting to bring the sides together. They played a very important role in backdoor diplomacy. They played a very important role in many aspects. And I see that role now as receding. Not only that, I think they play, I think Obama did play an important role, but I think also they have demonstrated tremendous amount of naivete. Oh, yes. As to the nature of the conflict, <laughs> yeah. the root causes of the conflict. And they, are not they were not prepared to address what we've been talking about all along. Mm that it is not just territory, this is not just refugees, this is not just the future of Jerusalem. It is a change of attitude, of attitude 
that has not taken place. And in fact, instead of changing their attitude toward another and accept the fact that coexistence is inevitable in one form or another, they are thinking in terms of no longer. Look at what Netanyahu and his cohorts thinking today is not its coexistence, but on their own terms, with the Palestinian under any circumstances will not accept. And this is what this is what actually happened. I think the the how the conflict evolved in the last two or three years in particular make things uh, so much more difficult. What happened with the, yesterday with with President Trump further added to that complexity. And it changed, and then please let, let's talk about that and from your perspective. I think it's also changed, as I said before, this psychological aspect of the conflict. Mm -hmm. It is no longer like you're suggesting, well, reasonable people can sit down and talk about and try to figure out a solution to their problem. But there, in my view, the reason does not prevail because there are other powerful elements at play. Ideology, which is often blind, religion, which is you cannot mitigate through discussion and get people to agree on one thing or change their set of belief. That's not going to happen. The history, the way it's written, the way it's understood by, by both sides. These things, they cannot sit down and merely mitigate and negotiate about. How do you then bring them to face the bitter reality? That notwithstanding these differences, that cannot be simply negotiated per se. You're going to have to create circumstances that is going to change that. And that is what is missing. And when you don't have serious interlocutor like in the United States, which is probably the only power that can affect the change, and willing, that's where I think Obama failed miserably too. That is, yes, with the best of intention, he wanted to negotiate a solution. But he was not prepared to take the kind of steps necessary to put the kind of pressure necessary on Israel and on the Palestinians to come and make them come to their senses. Time has come for you to realize that what you're doing, you're digging yourself deeper and deeper into a situation, creating more and more facts on the ground that cannot really be very difficult to reverse, and which is going to perpetuate the conflict. And what will be the result of continuing this conflict is more war, more violence, more death, more casualties, more destruction. Let me raise a thought. Yeah. And that is, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I have to say, from uh, to preface it by saying that it's a thought that I'm a little hesitant to, to raise because it comes to a point where I can't progress beyond it. But let me say this. I think what this means is that in certainly in psychological terms, maybe what it's time to think of a new reset point. I think we have to look at the nature of public discourse and how it has changed over the past generation or two. We have to take into account social media, which we never had before uh, in the previous generation uh, and uh, its enormous power. And we also have to take into account something else. It has been said that this is, we are now seeing the death of the liberal order, in the, certainly in, in, in the Western world, as we see in uh, that the, the shift to conservative modes of thinking for various reasons we aren't going to, but we also have to add to that, is that certainly I would put it in a more gentle term, gentle way, that this is the era in which we are seeing rational discourse being marginalized. Yes, so, exactly. so, and that is why the conservative mindset sees the liberal mindset as naive, because the liberal mindset will assume that there's a rational basis to everything. The conservative mindset was that we're rational, 
Because we can argue rationally from within the ideology and within the religion. We can go from point A to point B in a rational kind of way. But what is missing is the mega rationality of the public discourse. And here comes the question. If you haven't got anymore the power of rational thinking, what should we do? How can we try to change the nature of, of consolidated positions so which have enormous is, danger? Yeah, this is exactly the point, is what's happening in Israel today. You cannot change that uh, by simply negotiating that because rational thinking right. is not prevailing. And then to be able to change politically the dynamics from within, both Israelis and the Palestinians, you have to have a viable, strong, liberal groups of people who are going to you know, and say there's a different way and be able to be persuade significant portion of the population to follow us. In Israel, you don't have that. You don't have that kind of political opposition with a, with a clear view what to do, how to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And among the Palestinians, you have also a very weak uh, liberal position or attitude toward Israeli, but the, 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 the right of center, the, the extremists, Hamas and its likes, are getting more and more power and more and more strength. Yes. And so what, what is happening now, you are absolutely right, the liberal thinking is dying, mm. and it is now being exploited by the right and right of center on both sides. And that is why I think the gap, of course, as we said before, is a growing between the two sides. And then what is going to take now to, short of reasonable reason discourse by reason, which is not readily available, it's not there because it's impossible. I, I can't see the Israelis and the Palestinians having a rational discourse in, in trying to resolve these issues. No. And absent that, and absent significant viable opposition, liberal, more liberal, open-minded opposition, absent that as well, what choices are left for us to look into? That is, I think, the crux of the problem today. That is, if you exclude these two, yeah, now we are faced with the with the probably most the, gr the grimmest uh, option that's left. Well, let me just jump to the side for a moment, and yeah. uh, let's look at uh, some things that have been written uh, by people who are more knowledgeable than myself, who have pointed out that if the West wants to conquer ISIS. The wrong way to do it, or the incomplete way to do it, shall we say, is through uh, warlike methods. In other words, to attack them, to kill as many as possible, and so on and so forth. But someone else said, no, he said, what, what is needed is to, you have to deal with the ideological side. You, you have to find a way to weaken the ideological side. And what, he, what was pointed out in this particular discussion was that there are other forms of extreme Islam which do not require killing and torture. And the question was raised, have we mobilized enough of this way of thinking to counter effectively, because it almost speaks the same language. Now, if we take that concept, we're just working at the level of concepts at the moment, I cannot, mm -hmm. I cannot translate this into a program of action. But if we take the level of concept and say this, if there were some perhaps theoretical body with the will and the power to bring about change, 
in this. The starting point in my view should be to have a much, this is actually something that you said turned around on itself, is to have a much better understanding of the way of thinking of the extreme right and the extreme violent, the, or shall we say the violent extremes on the Palestinian side. How do they think? Exactly. And, and, and can exactly. we learn something from the way they think exactly. and bring that about in, in really what is ultimately needed is to change in democratic societies voting patterns to perhaps ultimately achieve a, a more rational way of thinking in analyzing yeah, politics. Yeah, exactly. But we're still with this issue. I don't think that we fully understand to the, to the depths of a level of intimacy that is needed the inner world of the far right in Israel and the inner world of the terrorist thinking. There's a lot of work done. I'm not uh, necessarily saying... No, no, I'm not no, no, but true. what I am saying, it hasn't been translated, it, it, a it translational to, element. Into to, to action, to That's actually right. take an action. Yes. You know, I want to go back to what you mentioned about ISIS. You know, how do you finish ISIS? ISIS is, is, a, is a body mm. that, in my view, um, cannot, should not exist. That is... If you're going to wage a war against ISIS, then wage a war against ISIS and finish it as soon as possible. That does not mean, however, and I agree 100%, you're going to kill the ideology of ISIS because they already spread it all over. They have ISIS cells just about every country in the Middle East and including as well as European community. And that is where you have to deal with the root causes because ideology comes from a root cause of sort. That has been also completely missing. The question is, which one do you start with? That is, if you manage to eliminate ISIS first, you're going to also weaken, in my view, their ideological tenets on which they are, they are, they are because now there is no entity, real entity, that can support that kind of ideology, albeit the ideology itself is not dead. It could be even revi revived, just like Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was defeated in Afghanistan, but was not defeated elsewhere and today they, they surfaced again yeah. because why because the west the united states were not able to deal with the root causes of what's taking place actually within the arab world within the arab states so that is why i, th I don't think it's a mutually exclusive in terms of how you deal with with, with, an, with this kind of enemy that what is missing then is the lack of understanding of their mindset where they come from and short of understanding that understanding that perfectly you're not going to be able to mitigate the conflict. That is, you have to get into their mind, understanding where they... That, that's one, that's, there's no question of right and wrong. Yeah. We, we, we cannot pass that kind of judgment. Are they right or are they wrong? We've got to go into their mind and understand it, and that's where the process has to begin, but it's not there yet. It's certainly not there yet. Uh, you see, I mean, I, I really have to, uh, for a moment... Uh, say in brackets that we have to acknowledge that uh, some very fine scholarly work has been done to try and understand inner mindsets in, in various settings. Uh, but I'll go back to the point that you mentioned. I think translating that programmatically at national or international level is, is, is a dream. I don't, think, I don't think it exists in any concrete kind of way, but the real issue over here is that is exactly what is needed. That is what is needed. Now, um, I, I, I think that the complexity of the mindsets uh, and the way of thinking and the passion, the enormous passion 
of, for example, the extreme right in Israel, and for, for example, the extreme terror-orientated groups, violent or violence-orientated revanchist groups uh, in uh, Hamas, I really don't feel that in any way we have tapped that in a, in a way that can be translated, even in what direction it should be translated. Who are we going to talk to? Who's the audience here? I tend to feel that the audience should be the electorate, certainly on, in the Western uh, democratic settings, but the people, even just in the uh, Palestinian set, something has to come from bottom up. Something has to change at bottom up. And if the uh, electorate is enthralled, for example, it has been pointed out that the dominant psychological feature of the electorate that brought Trump into power is anger. That this is an angry electorate. They feel excluded by the elites. Now, we can stand from the position of the elites if we believe that's where we are and look at this and denigrate it. But we can also take another view and try to understand that anger, really get into it and see if we can learn from it, maybe with a position of humility even, and see if that can be translated into programmatic action to change perceptions and therefore change either voting patterns or change from bottom up uh, how the people, say in the Palestinian society, what pressure they put on their on their leaders. But here you have the two problems. One uh, will be different, but the results are the same. Among the Palestinians, you do not have electric that is that can be. I heard. understand that. Yes. So it doesn't exist. What the is people. the likelihood that such an electric actually will have that will come to the will will have the power to have a say? Mm. So whether the leadership are going to listen to? Of course. And in Israel, what you have there, I think we can say safely, based on polls taken so for so many years, a majority of Israelis would like to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict based on a two-state solution. Still. But where is the electric, uh, the, the, the votes that is going to create and, and you have a democratic, so-called democratic system of government, but you do not have the electric, the electric that is going to bring a government that is going to pursue different kind of course. So that's the problem you have. And as long as my view anyway, that as long as the, the Israeli political system is as such, where the majority has, is not, has been unable to muster the political power to change the, the nature of the conflict, we're going to have to live with it for many, many years to come. And I don't see how that, even in Israel, where, as I said earlier, there's democracy, you don't have the people themselves are not being able to change what the right has not already usurped from them, even though the right, albeit are growing, but they're not a majority in my view. In fact, I, I, I can assure you, it's not, they are not the majority, but they've been able to usurp the agenda and pursue their agenda because the left, the liberal, have become more and more complacent. Yes, indeed. But let me put to you a thought. Let me put to you a thought which I think is also derived from political psychology as I see it, and that is this. If the majority of the Israeli public would like to see the end of the conflict and would like to see peace, then why do they vote as they do? And I think the answer lies in the concept of what has been referred to in the writings, in the academic literature, as, as existential anxiety as a phenomenon, a collective phenomenon in the Israeli population. 
And existential anxiety, you know, there is a lot of work that has been done to show that emotional factors play much more of a role than we think in voting behavior. Voting behavior is not in itself always rational. Now, let's look at what happened in the previous election in Israel. When Netanyahu stood up and said the Arabs are voting in droves, what did he do? He manipulated the existential anxiety in the Israeli population to change their voting patterns at the last minute. Yeah, successfully. Yeah, yeah exactly. Successfully. And using fear, 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 fear of what what might happen otherwise. So you know, when you are when you are afraid, when you are concerned, when you are anxious, surely you're going to change your your vote if necessary to be able to prevent that from happening. So you'll be less fearful, less anxious, less concerned even though you know you're going to pay a certain price for it. But the price you're going to pay for it, which is letting the way the, the right to continue to do what they want, from their perspective, even the liberal thinking, well, that's not high enough price. Because the consequences that, because they, I think they started to believe the narrative of the right of, the right of center. Well, let me, let me continue with this point and, and, and put to you a thought that uh, is uh, tentative at best at this point. I believe that this concept of existential anxiety as a feature of the psychological collective of Israeli society has, is undergoing evolution. And I think we can talk about immediately operating existential anxiety, which is real and has to do with real factors, that Israel is surrounded by lethal enemies who... Uh, are able to, you know, we, we, we understand where that's coming from. This is not a psychological construct. It is a response to reality. However, what I want to add is that there seems to be growing voices in the public discourse, which I would say I- indicate a long-term existential anxiety. It is those who are saying that the settlement project will lead ultimately to the destruction of the Zionist project itself. It's those who say, my existential anxiety is not only for the rockets of the Hezbollah, and and also for some who will say, not only the Arabs voting in droves, but my existential anxiety is for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. Will there still be an Israel as we know it? Will it be an apartheid state which will suffer the consequences and will ultimately go the way of South Africa and my question here is are those in the Israeli population who experience this quality of anxiety do they constitute an electorate we don't know well yeah you, you know they they constitute electorate but what they want to see also and that has really been the case I think for many many years now Yes, you have a majority, as I said before, would like to see an end to the conflict, but when it comes to making the kind of concession necessary to achieve that, the liberal are not, that's, that segment of the population, which is more than half of the population, is not yet even ready to make that concession. So they basically want both, well, they want the cake and eat it, so to speak. Well, wait a second, Alon. Let's think about something else that we can learn from the Likud. If the Likud and the extreme right know how to mobilize immediately acting existential anxiety, and they do it very well, 
They're very skilled at it. We can learn from them. Okay? Why shouldn't the opposition use similar, maybe, maybe uh, customized skills to mobilize the longer-term form of existential anxiety if it is shown, perhaps by political scientists, through studies, or those that dare to try, to mobilize the long-term existential uh, anxiety segment to change the structure of government, because only by changing voting patterns will you change the power structure of the I government. I think now you're touching on the very core issue here. That is the nature, the political nature in Israel, is that the way Israel democracy is functioning, is, is dysfunction, is dysfunctioning. Pardon. It's a dysfunction, because as long as you have this kind of political system, where you have, I've been saying this so many times, a nauseam, you have 10, 15 parties eventually end up with some man mandate in the, in the Knesset, you're going to always have a coalition government from day one, from the time Israel was created. And then they have, it's very difficult to speak about consensus. We know that the majority of Israeli want to end the conflict, but they don't know how, what are the, and, and what is happening around them you know, the violence and terror, the instability in the region, exactly. I have to the, add, and yeah. a significant majority can be swayed to change their voting patterns. Yes, yeah, yeah. But you see, interestingly enough also, if you look at the makeup of today's Israeli government, the coalition government, do they really represent the majority of the Israelis? I don't think so. I agree. That's, that's the whole thing, mm. that's the whole point. Mm. Now, the, what is missing that they are unable to mobilize this kind of thinking you're talking about and if come up with a new agenda, political agenda, let's say, we have to do something about it because things are getting much worse than they're getting any better. Mm -hmm. And there is, as, long, as long as they are not presenting to the public viable alternatives and speak openly about the consequences of if there is no solution, what's going to happen. I don't see that discourse, public discourse taking place in Israel today. It's not being articulated. Yes, you have commentators writing the newspaper, mm -hmm. but where is the political body, the political organization that is going to put, say, all the opposition parties together and say, we've got to stop this because that is leading to the destruction of the state of Israel. They don't see it that way yet. And on how long haven't you and I talked about the, the missing key to the Middle Eastern conflict lies in the question of leadership. Yes, crisis. I mean, if, no, but what we're saying so often is that there's... I a, mean, a crisis of leadership. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a dearth of leadership. Yeah. I mean, for example, Netanyahu is considered to be a very fine leader for his, his electorate and for his political party, but we, we really don't see any kind of powerful, charismatic, swaying... Or people swaying a leader in the opposition. Yeah, yeah not, what is even more than not that? now and I <clears> hope <throat> yes. not yet. It's a leader with a vision. Vision. That is what's really lacking in Israel and elsewhere of around course. the world, of even almost ever, anywhere. It's a vision. Yes. What sort of vision do these leaders, Netanyahu and his and, and anyone else, the so called leaders in Israel, mm. what is their vision for the future? I don't think they can even articulate that. Even if they know, they don't want to talk about it. And we have to add 
that on the right and the far right uh, in the Israeli political spectrum, there are many, many politicians who are excellent public speakers, they are charismatic, and they know how to sway the audience. And I don't see on the opposition side uh, a critical mess of such uh, no, politicians. No, I think well. they failed. It's important. Yes, it's important. It's critical. Yes. It's more than that. I think it's critical. Mm. Their failure to mobilize public consensus. Correct. That and to prevent to, to present an, uh, an opposing agenda yeah. to which the, the the public can embrace. That has been missing and continue to be missing. And as long as that goes on, you can count on the on the right to continue to exploit the situation. And it may very well be too late to change that. And the only way you're going to change that by, like I said before, I, I'm now absolutely convinced this situation is going to lead to major explosion. And it's nothing short of that. It's a terrifying thought. Yeah, but that's what's going to happen. And I cannot exclude it either. And I say that with great trepidation. And I think, I think behind the scene, both sides are preparing for it. I really see that very clearly to me. What the Israelis are doing in preparation, they are preparing, preparing for another major war. They are preparing, be that from the north, be that from Gaza, be that from both sides, coming at the same time. There is a preparation to that end. And Hamas today is also thinking those terms, especially with the new leader. Yes. You know, why? Because they don't see any prospect of changing the nature of the conflict through negotiation, through talk, through concession. And so what they are left with, what have we, have we got to lose? Yeah. And war and conflict becomes the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. Do they want to continue to live under being subjugate, subjugated and occupied? Or they want to, will they, will they be willing to sacrifice 10, 20, 30,000 people in order to change that and, and stop what we started with the this constant humiliation yeah. and, the, and, and the, the, the usurpation of their right to live as a human being with rights. That is why I think it, the situation is becoming more and more hopeless and, and um, something is going to have to, to, to happen to change that. And just to add that those patterns that you're referring to serve to further consolidate the extremist ways of thinking about the enemy. That if the enemy is preparing for war, so are we. And that's true for both ways. In other words, it creates a dynamic that is very, very difficult to, yeah. to change. And my, my, my thoughts uh, have to do with the fact that there is an urgent need for a new paradigm of thinking and to to think of ways to reset the beginning point of change differently to how we have thought about it up to now. Yeah, but I mean, one other point I just want to make is that I really think that the uh, current Israeli government, the, all the groups in the right that center, uh, probably are inviting this type of explosion and to serve their interest in the sense that they're going to further consolidate and say, look what the Palestinians are doing. Yes, indeed. And I think the Palestinians have also an interest in a, you know, in, in a new explosion, for, as they see it, because that too 
is going to create a new conditions. But the interesting part of it, as I, when I hear them talking, it has to be big enough that it will make it impossible to go back to the status quo ante. The next war is not going to be another incursion into Gaza. It's going to be much bigger than that. And then create such situation that it's impossible to restore the status quo as it was. That's what they'll be aiming for. And that's what I believe is going to happen. And, and just to add with uh, a greater price in blood. Both on both sides. On both yeah. sides. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.